if he went the Obama direction. <laughs> Good God, John Kerry is your celebrity. <laughs> oh, I mean, he, he was almost president. It's a strange world out there. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM every single Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. We are uh, also available on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. You can go there, visit our website, see all of our previous interviews, conversations, all the show notes associated with it. We're going strong. We're on episode 49. We've been broadcasting to you every single week so far in january i think we started like somewhere around january 6 or 13 something like this i'm one half of your host yael ososki coming to you from vienna austria hard in the middle of the european union and i'm joined as always by my colleague trusty colleague david clement in toronto ontario david how goes it well, it's going well it's going well um people are starting to get vaccinated so maybe seeing the light at the end of the tunnel um although not not trying to get my hopes up that it'll happen uh too quick because i know it's a onerous process and it'll take a while but um at least some good news um it's crazy how we started this in january and i remember one of our first episodes was all about the australian wildfires and what was going on, how bad it really was, and what the problems were, and what the causes were. And we had Tim Andrews on the show, great guest. But that feels like it was like three years ago. That doesn't even feel like it was even remotely close to the pandemic. Um, yeah, there's so much that fell into that. And then we remember covering all the Democratic debates, you know, for the Democratic uh, presidential candidate. Yep. And that was insane and took a lot of our energy and time. And then, uh, Next thing we knew, we're uh, sitting in Davos. I'm uh, suffering through a cold, and uh, we hear about this uh, terrible disease off there in China. Yeah, and we see we see the um, the executive of the World Health Organization just went walking down the street with a big smile on his face, not knowing obviously the strange world. <laughs> yeah, not knowing obviously the um, the craziness that was about to ensue. So. Um, yeah, in the words of Bernie Sanders, it, it is a strange world out there. Yeah, and I know that I'm I'm playing around a bit more with the audio. I got a brand new device. Uh, we can actually talk about that a bit later in the program. Uh, there's a we'd like to do kind of a consumer corner and talk about some some awesome new innovations and products and services that we've been using. Uh, it's going to be a really good time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just just quickly uh, add in a beep as if you're if, if as if you're swearing like a trucker. Yes, and, and uh, this is an FCC-compliant button that I have here uh, attached to my computer. Um, so, David, let's get into it. Something that just happened this week, a big thing that uh, wrote about top of news. It's uh, the idea that Facebook getting slapped with a huge lawsuit. Uh, this is happening from the Federal Trade Commission, along with 46 attorneys general 
across the United States. That's usually like the, the top attorney general of each state. And they filed this big lawsuit stating that Facebook is a monopoly and engages in anti-competitive practices. And uh, before we, you know, kind of opine on that and give our opinion, I do have two clips I'd like to play. One of them is the attorney general of New York State. Uh, she is Leticia James. Uh, let's hear what she has to say about this, and uh, we'll come back with that. Facebook has been spending its time surveilling users' personal information and profiting it, profiting from it. No company, no company should have this much unchecked power over our personal information and our social interactions. And that's why we are taking action today and standing up for the millions of consumers and many small businesses that have been harmed by Facebook's illegal behavior. And so we are asking the court to halt Facebook's anti-competitive conduct and block the company from continuing this behavior in the future, as well as provide any additional relief it determines is appropriate. By restoring competition, our lawsuit will help consumers have alternatives to Facebook and that they can vote with their feet. Today, we are sending a clear and a strong message to Facebook and every other company that any efforts to stifle competition and hurt small businesses, reduce innovation and creativity, or cut pricey protections, privacy protections, will be met with the full force of our offices. What a bogus suit. So if I'm a reporter in the gallery there and I hear that, I mean, cool that she cares about privacy, but my first question would be, Madam Attorney General, what is your opinion of Edward Snowden? Mm. And then obviously yeah, and, I know what her answer would be. She would probably say Edward Snowden is a traitor, blah, blah, blah. Well, then you're obviously full of it, and this has nothing to do with consumer privacy. Because if you care about privacy, that obviously is, is your first priority. But honestly, And I think she just threw that in for, for the oomph measure because – Everything that is in the initial suit by the FTC and all these different states uh, has nothing to do with privacy. It has to do with two specific things. It has to do with the purchasing of WhatsApp and the purchasing of Instagram. Uh, Instagram, that one was purchased for $1 billion, and then I believe WhatsApp purchased for $19 billion. And uh, I think WhatsApp was 2014, Instagram 2012. And everybody laughed. I think a lot of people don't realize this. So everybody laughed at Facebook. All the business analysts laughed at Facebook when they bought Instagram for that much. They said they overpaid. They didn't really understand if there was any utility in the platform in comparison to Facebook. And then obviously Facebook pumped money and development dollars into it. And it became this huge platform that runs in a different um, in, in a different realm of social media than Facebook itself. And so it was weird. Like it's weird to hear them now claim that something is anti-competitive when at the time everybody thought they were getting ripped off and everyone was oh, like, yeah. what a and bogus investment. Added to that, both of these deals already went through the agency that's currently leading these lawsuits, the Federal Trade Commission. So this is the this is the I guess 
apart from all the double speak mm. that uh, the New York Attorney General is using there, uh, talking about competition and choice and all, I mean, come on. This is at most, at most you could say this is just a way to, you know, try to show to voters or whomever um, that they're trying to do something about social media because they're polling some people and yep. some people are not happy with the way that various uh, companies are doing things online, which I think you and I have agreed with and sure. have discussed at length, but to weaponize the government going after uh, Facebook's separate business units. And the one thing that I noticed when we pr uh, we put together press release, uh, I think it was earlier on Thursday, was that if you actually look at the numbers, there's 200 million people in the U.S. who have an iPhone and presumably use iMessage, direct competitor to WhatsApp, by the way. Yep. And that's not even thinking about the people who use normal SMS messaging. And I happen to know that Americans mostly use that <laughs> it, to much to my annoyance being abroad. <laughs> but yep. this is a um, terrible, terrible process, terrible news. Uh, I think this is, again, the double speak that's coming out of this out of concern for the quote consumer. Ridiculous, because this is just going to make it all of these services worse if this ever happens if it gets to that level i'm hoping it doesn't and i don't really think it will yeah and they may have a case if facebook was engaging in regulatory capture so if facebook was was basically lobbying for laws that that actively prevent someone else from creating some sort of platform or messaging app or anything like that well, then maybe they would have a case, but that is not what this is about. This is about two acquisitions that already um, already got passed or already cleared review that they're now going back at because in hindsight, they think that um, the rules should be changed or in hindsight, it looks different after Instagram has become successful and after WhatsApp has become popular. I mean, that is also what's missing in this conversation is why did they become popular? Well, I mean, WhatsApp became popular because it now it, it disrupts what used to be the very difficult process of messaging and calling overseas. Do you remember long yeah. distance fees for cell phone calls or text messages? I mean, I remember long distance calls calling my grandmother, who was, um, you know, 45 minutes from me. Yeah. <laughs> I was in Montreal and I was calling her in St. Yassine. So, yeah, I remember getting charged those fees back then. Yeah, so something like WhatsApp completely, um, completely sidesteps that old kind of archaic approach to communication. Surely nobody thinks that that's a bad thing. No, and I think what their assumption is, and what I really don't like, is all of this is couched in the kind of concern for the consumer, but really it's just very anti-innovation, very anti uh, entrepreneurship and anti Silicon Valley. You know, if the if these guys had some kind of a backbone, uh, generally in in Silicon Valley, because all of the Democratic legislators who are the representatives of Silicon Valley do not normally defend them. You know, in in these different hearings and things where these these things have been discussed, particularly in the Senate, and it's it's just so sad to see because this is innovation that's happening, and what is the response? You know, from uh, particularly our uh, apparently our elected uh, uh, judicial and uh, 
attorneys trying to go after some of these companies. And again, it is because these apps and services have grown popular after the fact. And it's because of these algorithms. It's because of the investments. I mean, there are plenty of these other services that probably would have been even more popular than WhatsApp had they been acquired by Facebook or if you know, imagine some other company, Microsoft had picked up some other company They could have done the same thing. It just happens that they were successful. Uh, I don't want to play one other clip. So that that's more of a political clip that's coming from the New York Attorney General. Um, these positions are usually filled by Democrats and Republicans, but we have the Federal Trade Commission supposed to be sort of nonpartisan. Um, this is a clip that they put together. Uh, the guy was zooming it in. Uh, for his press conference, but this is a the Bureau of Competition to discuss why they are filing this antitrust lawsuit. Today, the Federal Trade Commission authorized a complaint alleging that Facebook has engaged in an anti-competitive course of conduct to illegally maintain its monopoly position in personal social networking. The commission's complaint alleges that Facebook undertook a years-long effort to maintain its monopoly through anti-competitive acquisitions and actions that target potential and nascent rivals. Today's enforcement action aims to restore competition to this important industry. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'd, I'd want to skip to the very end because he mentioned something. Uh, David, I'm just going to skip ahead here the last six seconds. Competitive vigor necessary to foster innovation and consumer choice. No! <laughs> yeah, it's a... <laughs> Our words are being weaponized against us. I mean, what's interesting? So, what's hilarious is I saw news break of this lawsuit. And do you know where I saw it? Let me guess Facebook, Twitter. Oh, Twitter. Okay. Which completely debunks the idea that Facebook has some all encompassing monopoly over social networking. Those two are separate companies. If Facebook has not bought Twitter, they're not trying, there's no hostile takeover to buy Twitter where Facebook would essentially own everything. Um, so th that immediately kind of highlighted the irony of all of this to me, because if they were to buy Twitter, well then maybe there would be some like, okay, well they're just buying up the entire space. Everything's going to be controlled by Facebook. Maybe that, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing, but that's not what's happening. And then the other um, thing that I, I, I'm certain we've talked about this before, but our listeners can Google it. Go Google the headlines. <laughs> or, or Bing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Bing it, yes. Uh, or Ask Jeeves or whatever else you can do. Um, go Google the headlines from MySpace prior to the creation of Facebook. Because it was all of this, it was the same discussion. It was a, is, is MySpace a monopoly? Is MySpace ever going to go away? Like, are they ever, like, do they have too much power? And then you fast forward 15, 16 years, and your average social media user would have no idea what MySpace was. Mm. Um, so it just goes to show you that the way things appear now is not always how things are going to be in the future. And that the only way to actually continue to survive over time is to innovate, is to invest in new products and new ideas like Instagram or WhatsApp and continue to better um, what the company can offer users. And so it, it, for me, this whole thing also feels like this is the argument that both the left and the right have picked uh, 
based on their grievances they have with technology companies. So the left doesn't like Facebook because of the 2016 election. They don't like Facebook because it's a successful company and maybe they feel like it should be taxed more. The right feels like they don't like social media or Facebook because it, in air quotes, censors conservative viewpoints um, or engages in um, censorship, which I use air quotes because I think the top eight of the top 10 um, outlets on Facebook in terms of reach and exposure are all conservative programs like Ben Shapiro, Daily Caller. Um, can, can I add one more uh, that I think applies to both left and right? Sure. Uh, I think it also has to do with strangely enough, removing the monopoly of the kind of news gatekeepers. And I, I don't think this is, a, you know, it's nothing they're going to throw in the lawsuit or nobody's going to say out loud, but it's true that Facebook allows people to seek out alternative information. And it's many times alternative to the perspective that many politicians would like to push. And I can say that for um, many people who don't like Trump, who, you know, if, if it wasn't for being on Facebook, people could connect with their friends and share articles that might be more critical of things that you would read in, you know, Trump-friendly publications or pages. And that allows everybody to kind of make up their own minds, have their own conversations. And it's a way that people have seen all these alternative ways of thinking, alternative uh, sort of narratives. I think that is another thing that also appeals to the dominant media industry, you know, the large newspapers and TV stations. Well, all these people on Facebook can, you know, slap together an account and have 10 million followers and they can sort of share their own information. We're not the gatekeepers anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, that's maybe the third, the third leg of this is generally speaking, the newspaper industry despises social media and despises Facebook, which I think is misguided because they send them free leads all day. Um, yeah. And they need them. Yeah. Uh, like where would, where would Vox be? Not, not Fox, Vox, V-O-X be without social media. I mean, I don't think they would be even remotely as successful. Mm -hmm. And and I would even take that apart. Cause it's, I would say the online uh, digital outlets, maybe I'm wrong here, but I would say they, are not necessarily in this gatekeeper category. No. Yeah, they, they traditionally aren't, but they do end up usually lining up at the trough of whatever... New, I, I use newspapers as to describe traditional media. So like an example would be what's going on in Australia, where the government's going to pass a law that says every time you post a newspaper link to social media... Every time somebody clicks on it, Facebook has to pay the newspaper, which for me is like the completely backwards way of doing it. Because if you post something, so you, you had an article published in the Miami Herald, you posted on your Facebook, a bunch of people go and read it. Facebook just sent free leads, free advertising dollars to the Miami Herald, possibly to get subscriptions, certainly to increase ad revenue. And now the Australian government wants to insert itself into that process and say, um, and basically say, we're inter we're we're intervening, and we're going to make you Facebook pay for sending free leads to 
these newspapers. Um, because you'd be in jail. Yeah, that's insane. No, it's, yeah, it's, and, it, it doesn't know, make any yeah, sense. Yet another way to intervene, and um, everyone's playing to their own interest here. So uh, there's going to be plenty to come out of that. We did put out a press release. Uh, there's a couple of other articles. If you guys are interested, head on over to consumerchoicecenter.org. Uh, you can find a lot more that we've been working on there and many more things to come. Uh, David, I wanted to use this opportunity to uh, look up north. I think there's a lot of uh, interesting news, things that are actually impacting uh, or in many ways are foretelling what will happen in, in many other countries uh, when it's coming, when we're talking about not just lockdowns, but we're talking about, you know, really the plans of governments in the future. And I'm thinking more of what a Joe Biden presidency and uh, for the Democrats in the House who will be emboldened, you know, are they going to be following many plans that are happening in Canada? So here's a, a clip from uh, the finance minister and I believe deputy uh, prime minister. Is it uh, Christiana Freeland? Uh, she had a, a nice, interesting clip. Um, I think this was just pulled off of, of some interview she was doing yeah. or testimony, but let, let's, uh, let's hear this for some fun. Economists uh, like Ben, like Doug, have been pointing out that some Canadian households, and it tends to be the better off households, do have quite a lot of money that they've saved because there hasn't been that much to do in the pandemic. And certainly it would be great if that money could go towards driving our recovery. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like sounds like some kind of uh, tax that they've got planned in their back pocket, David. And so this is the thing is that it really comes down to how how is the recovery driven? Is it is it driven by innovation and genuine consumer spending or is it driven by some plan to tax and redistribute? And that's why a comment like that is pretty concerning because my like I, I actually like Freeland. I think that she's a competent finance minister. However, the Trudeau government doesn't have a very good track record of wanting to get the government out of the way to fuel growth. They go very much the other way where they say, okay, well, how can we get money out of the private sector into the government's hands and then use that money to fuel innovation, all sorts of buzzwords like super clusters and money for tech that never panned out. It's, it, it strikes me very much for anyone who followed Obama's energy policy. It's kind of like Solyndra where it's like, oh, well, we found this great company. We're going to give them a bunch of money and then they fizzle out. And nothing happens. Um, so when I hear her say that, it's like, okay, people have savings. How is the government going to get it? As opposed to what it could be and what it should be is people have savings. How do we encourage them to spend it on things that they want in the recovery? So, Or how do we ensure that uh, millions of other people also have savings and also have disposable income? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So uh, that that caused a bit of a storm here, her comments, because conservatives jumped on it and said, she's coming for your savings. Like, <laughs> hope you uh, hope you lock your money away, um, which is I mean, well, in, in that I would point uh, many listeners to your article that you had not too long ago on the wealth tax, mm -hmm. uh, something that had been pushed by the more left wing parties. But, so, you know, there have been murmurs, you know, throughout uh, the United States as well. And no doubt in, in different parts of Canada, they might try something like that where they're going to uh, tax 
wealth, not just your income, but uh, essentially all of your property. And uh, as you argued eloquently, David, this is actually something that would end up harming many people, specifically because of investments, uh, specifically because of retirement plans that are tied to many of these different assets that are then going to be taxed at a different level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to mention, this is, again, going to hurt the little guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one big one that I feel like every election cycle gets flirted with and then goes away because it's really unpopular um, is the idea. There's an, a member of parliament in Toronto named Adam Vaughn, and he basically got caught saying, well, we should tax people's sale of their principal home, which they don't do at this moment. You only get taxed on the sale of a home if you own multiple properties. And so for your average person, you're, you have a family, you have two kids, you have a house, you basically ride out the increase in that value over the course of 20, 30 years, you pay your mortgage off, and then you have 500000 800000 maybe a million dollars if you live in Toronto, um, in value in that home, and you sell it and you use that as a big part of your retirement. Now, the proposal would be to tax that sale as like capital gain. So it's like, oh, well, you bought the house for 500 30 years ago and you sold it for a million. So the government's going to come in and take a chunk of those profits. Well, that would pretty drastically ruin the retirement uh, planning for your average homeowner, your, your middle income homeowner uh, in Canada. I don't know what the rules are in the United States, but it's those types of proposals that are considered but would be absolutely devastating if they ever got passed now luckily that one is pretty unpopular and every time they bring it up it seems to disappear pretty quick but you know that it's there because it keeps coming up definitely you're listening here to consumer choice radio on the big talker 1067 fm um, there's a couple other topics in our canada corner but i'll, I'll probably toss those till next week uh, I think we've talked enough about the Great Reset stuff, <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, but I, I did have some clips on that, but that's fine. Uh, we'll continue on. Uh, we want to get back into the conversation about lockdowns and their impact on consumers and uh, particularly individuals. Uh, this is a topic that no doubt if you've been listening to talk radio, you've heard a good amount about. And uh, there have been a lot of clips uh, that have been going around virally of a viral nature, uh, specifically this uh, business owner in California who was, I don't have that particular clip, but she was showing her restaurant that she had an outdoor dining space that she had constructed just so she could serve customers in line with what the regulation stated. I don't know if it was Los Angeles County or California generally. Uh, she was not allowed to do that. And then uh, she just panned her camera and we saw a... Uh, Hollywood film crew that apparently was able to set up an outdoor dining space. So that this is the kind of stuff that's in the background. People see that there is a lot of you know, unfairness, you know, when you are setting rules up that, you know, are able to allow some stores to be open or some services to continue on and others not. And there's a lot of jobs that lie on that. There's a lot of people who need that income to pay their rent and to feed their kids. Uh, so it was interesting to see on Elite Television, CNBC. Uh, I got this clip. I thought this is really interesting. One. This is this is Rick Santelli. Uh, he is a, a reporter, or maybe he's an analyst over there at CNBC. 
Uh, he was talking with many of his panelists about the impact of the lockdowns and also the fairness of having various businesses open and others not. And I think it goes to show that this is the actual debate that we should be having on these lockdowns. It's not about denying the impact of masks or denying the virus or whatever. It's more about what are the best rules and the best methods that we can use to ensure that we can both protect people and also make sure that not everyone loses their jobs and their livelihoods. And when I point out governors cheating, it's not for the hypocrisy which exists. Uh, real quick on that point, um, they were talking about earlier in the segment, uh, these various politicians, whether it be the, I think it's the mayor of Austin, who's telling people don't visit your family for Thanksgiving and, while he's hanging out, you know, vacationing in Mexico. Yeah, or was that and, Den uh, Denver did the same? Like he was about Denver, to like board yeah. the plane to go to Houston and he's like, don't go visit <laughs> your family, don't travel. And it's like, you're in the airport. <laughs> what are you doing? And uh, also California Governor Gavin Newsom, yeah. uh, along with many other people hanging out with with many lobbyists, by the way. You know, he wasn't hanging out with us. He was hanging out with uh, a lobbyist there in California at the French Laundry Restaurant, apparently one of the most expensive, uh, no masks and just having fun, having a good time. And I think uh, that's what Centelli was talking about before. It's the fact that I think many of these governors are intelligent people and they love their families, which they've taken out into restaurants. Therefore, there is actually and should be an ongoing debate as to, you know, why a, a parking lot for a big box store like by my house is jam-packed. Not one parking spot open. Why are those people any safer than a restaurant with plexiglass? I, I, I just don't get it. And I think there's a million of these questions that could be asked. And I think it's really sad that when we look at the service sector and all the discussions we've had about job losses, that that particular dynamic isn't studied more, isn't worked more. We don't put more people in a room and try to figure out ways so that these service sector employees and employers could all come back in a safer way. You can't tell me that shutting down, which is the easiest answer, is necessarily the only answer. Rick, I just, I, I just as, a, as, a, as a public health and public service announcement uh, for the audience, the difference wait, between wait, a big all, box retailer. Who is this? Hold on. The difference between <clears throat> the oh, who else? The different <laughs> who the else? difference between <laughs> a big else? box retailer. Hold on. The difference between a big box retailer and a restaurant, or frankly, even a, a church, are so different it's unbelievable. Going I disagree. Into a big box retailer, I disagree. You're wear, I disagree. You're wearing You can a mask. have your thoughts and I you're can have mine. You're required to wear a mask. I disagree. I, it's science. I'm sorry. It's science. If it's you're wearing a mask, science. it's a different story. 500 people at a Lowe's aren't any safer than 150 people in a restaurant that holds 600. I don't believe it. Sorry. Don't believe okay. it. And I you, live in an area don't... where there's a lot of restaurants that have fought back and they don't have any problems. And they're open. Okay. You don't have to believe it, but let me just say this. You're doing a I disservice to I the won't. viewer because the viewers need to you understand it. You are doing it. a disservice we, we are to the viewer. You are. You are. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If, if, if I, I would like to keep our viewers as healthy as humanly possible, the idea of packing people into yeah. restaurants. I think our viewers are smart enough to make part of those decisions on their own. I don't things. think that I'm much smarter than all the viewers, like some people do. Can I get in? Oh, that was good. That well, was a lovely singer at the end. And immediately, the the person who interjected completely misrepresented his position when he's like, well, I, I don't think you, it's safe to encourage people to pack restaurants. I mean, he said, what if a restaurant that can hold 600 has 150 people in it? What's the difference between that and 
a Lowe's that is jam-packed with a full parking lot. And the real issue here is that he's treated as if he's saying something that is just so radical that it can't be unchecked on the air. Like he couldn't, he couldn't let that go as an argument in and of itself. He had to immediately be like, well, I owe it to the viewers to basically say that you're full of it and this is really unsafe and don't listen to your advice. It's like, I mean, he didn't say, it's not like he was some guest being like, the virus isn't real, masks don't work, um, this is just the flu. Like, he wasn't saying all of that nonsense. He was saying, I think there can be a responsible discussion about how to keep things open in a safe manner um, that ha involves some level of fairness between businesses. And I think that that's a pretty appropriate discussion. And then I think that's the debate that everybody should be having is the cost-benefit analysis of, okay, how many people can we let in a restaurant? What about ventilation? What about mask mandates? Okay, well, we want to keep X, X, and X, and this is how we're going to proceed in, in, in terms of ensuring that they can at least stay open and, and stay as safe as possible. I think plexiglass is probably a great addition because it creates a, a little box um, that prevents exposure to other people beyond the people you're sitting with, which are usually in your household um, because of the current rules. So uh, yeah, for me, I, we need more of that discussion. I feel, we feel, I feel like a broken record saying this because we've been having this type of conversation for, for a long time about the cost benefit analysis. And I, my, my worry is that just too many people are unable to view it um, to have any cost benefit analysis go into this at all. And they just go, okay, cases are up, therefore locked down until we get cases to zero, then we can reopen or lock down until the vaccine is widely available, which is still going to be a matter of months and months and months. Um, and so it's just a lot of, a lot of pain and anguish that is not seen by commentators who want to pull the lockdown switch right away. And it's a lot of straw manning, obviously, as you just mentioned. You know, he made a very good, eloquent point, and it's immediately straw manned by, um, I think it's Andrew Ross Sorkin, is that his name? I always get the Sorkins messed up. Sorkin. Just have to make sure it's the right guy, because there's, there's, yeah, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Yeah. yeah, and this is the kind of stuff that, at least, you know, for people who might be tuned in, maybe they see this all day long, or maybe they don't even have that alternative perspective, which I think is true in many different uh, circumstances. I know following the debate in, in Quebec and in, in the French part of Canada, you know, there's a lot of this kind of straw manning of opponents. You know, the second you question lockdowns, you're, you're just uh, an anti-mask crazy person <laughs> when, when really it's the majority of business owners that are you know, they have invested in making sure that their establishments, you know, can keep people safe. They don't have to be exposed. They have all kinds of things that they're able to do, but we're not even letting them do it. Uh, again, people have heard a good amount about this, but I think it we had to belabor that point. Yeah. I thought that was a very good exchange, and, and, which uh, you don't often see. And in many instances, the debate, this debate happens between higher state level officials or provincial officials and local mayors. So I know in Ontario, it was like the premier was like, okay, well, we may have to lock these regions down. And the mayors of the cities in those regions said, no, don't do that. So which like people, like who are we listening to? Are we listening to 
the mayors who maybe have a little more skin in the game because they are trying to be responsive to their constituents. Um, like at what point does, uh, how much do we weigh what the demands of people locally are? Uh, if they don't want the lockdown and they feel like the, the, the consequences of whatever the restrictions are, are worth it, um, then do you let them make that call? Do you let local cities and towns make that call um, via their mayors? Or do you have someone in, I mean, a, a state capital or provincial capital kilometers or hundreds of kilometers or thousands of kilometers away make that call? I don't know. I mean, that strikes me as a very difficult situation to navigate because you're trying to trump the, the if we call it democratic authority or the decision-making process for, um, for people, the, the ones who are actually the most responsive to people on the ground. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Federalism matters and it works. And, you know, certainly separation of powers and a mayor will know much better what is achievable in their various area than a governor. And, uh, you know, that's that's why, again, we've belabored many of these points. But still, I think having this division and having these debates is very important. And, and also, you know, making sure that we're making sure we're doing this for the right reasons. Something that I saw come up in California and, and different Canadian provinces is just arbitrary numbers that are attached to the number of people who are testing positive of the Carol Baskins virus, as that is the grand indicator. Well, we've never heard of this indicator before. This is brand new. This is not scientifically backed. This is sort of a political measure uh, that is used to justify some of the things that come later. You know, how, why are, how are people coming to these decisions? I think that that's something that a lot of people are asking and for us, you know, that's that's really what's going to impact your life, my life, uh, the the life of many entrepreneurs, businesses, and the life of so many people who, you know, might go without a paycheck next week. I, I think we have to continue asking that. And there's there's really not too much uh, that that is unfortunately going up to the mainstream about that. It's it's many political battles. But hey, I got to say, David, I I do notice. Do you notice a kind of trend with? Um, the retreat of, of Trump uh, sort of at the top. Do you notice a, a difference in many debates and conversations that are happening now, uh, not just on media, social media, everything else? Yeah, well, a lot of, if you are on Twitter, you'll, there were some pretty uncomfortable examples of members of the media fawning over the incoming Biden administration. Um, I've noticed that that makes me uncomfortable because it just, it seems like they obviously people have their biases and that's, that's unavoidable. Um, but to see them come out so blatantly. What was the, the, the biggest fawning that you saw? Uh, uh well, I, there was the whole there's thing. a couple of examples. I'm wondering which yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, there was highlighted. the whole thing about the, the all female communications team and then, I mean, obviously, the Trump administration was dominated by very, now, I disagreed with them almost all the time, but very strong, passionate, empowered women. Um, it was almost as if, like, female empowerment doesn't count when the right does it. 
Um, oh, you you hit the nail on the head, buddy. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and that's we'll not even see this. From, yeah. I'm not griping from someone who's like, oh, my team is getting isn't getting a fair shake because that's not even really my team. I'm just sitting here as like a casual observer, going, wait a second, you guys never made any noise about um, about Sarah Sanders being Sarah Huckabee Sanders being the press secretary about. Um, the more recent one, who, who, I can't, I can never pronounce her last name. Kaylee McEnany. That's it. Um, Hope Hicks and all of the other women who worked for Trump. If empowerment and kind of breaking glass ceilings is the goal, well, then some of that has happened under the Trump administration. You may not like the women and you may not like the president, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it happened. And so to see people like line up and like clap and, and love that, that this is the direction that Biden was going, it was like, okay, you're starting to really show your biases here because a lot of this has already happened. You just didn't like the person. So it's, you, you, you either ignored it or your biases completely clouded your ability to look at this objectively, which obviously is a problem. And we see the same things with different um ethnic or sexual categories, you know, if you have the, oh, it's the first African-American this or that, when, you know, we've actually had Republicans who have been in those same positions who happen to be, you know, of the same uh, persuasion or race or whatever it might be. Another one was uh, Richard Grinnell. Uh, He was, you know, he's a cabinet guy, uh, openly gay. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, you know, Mayor Pete could be the first openly gay cabinet member ever. It's like, no. like, excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, just because you didn't like Grinnell doesn't mean that he's somehow less gay. (laughs) Yeah. And we see things like, oh, we could have our first first ever black uh, secretary of state. And it's like, okay, guys, let's, do we, are we erasing the last 20 years here? So yeah, there's a lot of that. Your ideas matter. Uh, but also, you know, your various qualities matter. I think that's that's something that the government is not supposed to be there to adjudicate, and it's not that you know we are to celebrate. It's supposed to be about uh, people's genuine talents and uh, you know their experience and how well they can do in the job. And uh, that's a whole other topic and issue, and, though. And what I will say is that, and I said this on on the show that you were on vacation for is that I generally, although I disagree with a lot of the policy positions of the people who are being selected for these cabinet positions, Biden isn't going the direction of basically just stacking the deck with political celebrities. And he's really going at this as from like a technocratic viewpoint of like, okay, who who is my secretary of state going to be? In a traditional administration, Right. Who was Obama's secretary of state? Well, it was either John Kerry or it was Hillary, Hillary Clinton. He Biden went a completely different direction, not somebody. he. Well, he's he's still he's still pulling from the Obama circle. Yes, but not not celebrities in the same way where it's like if he went the Obama direction. <laughs> Good God. John Kerry is your celebrity. <laughs> well, I mean, he, he was almost president. Yeah. Right. He was almost so it's like, okay, how do we recycle all of these people from the political world? And he's just done that at a at a less less flashy rate. And I for whatever reason I appreciate that. I mean, they may be terrible picks, I don't know. But like I'm happy that his cabinet isn't uh is isn't Warren, isn't Sanders, isn't 
Amy Klobuchar isn't basically everyone he ran for president against because running for president doesn't make you qualified to be secretary of state. It doesn't make you qualified to be some other cabinet position. And so he may make bad decisions, but at least he's not going for star power in each of these positions. So for me, at least, I appreciate that. Um, I don't know what your take is on it. I know some of these people have some problematic views um, from our perspective, but I, I do like that it's not um, he's not stacking the deck with with um, with political opponents, and he's not stacking the deck with his children either, which <laughs> is nice. Yeah, and at least they were not on official cabinet uh, level positions. So there, there's a couple. I'm, I'm actually looking at the Wikipedia. There's already a Wikipedia for the. The cabinet of Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. The guy's not even president. He's already got his own wiki with everybody already listed and have their nice image on there. Uh, so yeah, the, I, one of the more concerning is uh, Javier Becerra, who's yes. uh, state attorney general of California. And we've mentioned plenty of terrible things coming out of California. He's going to be the secretary of labor, apparently. Or no, I'm sorry, self, uh, health and human services. Mm-hmm. Oh God, even worse. Yeah, not great. <laughs> Not great. They're coming for your vapes. Yeah. Yeah, this will not be good. Um, not great. Um, yeah, that's, I, I mean, again, that's, there are, there are a couple, I know that there was one one appointee who um, is a big fan of, uh, was it soda taxes? All, basically any sin tax. Oh, yeah, that's him. That's him. Okay, okay, yeah. So, yeah, not not good. Obviously, we don't want that. That's uh, That's a negative. Um, and then we have in the director of the Office of Management and Budget, very important role, um, liaising, or liaising a lot with the Senate and the House on all matters, economics and finances. Uh, the candidate that has been pushed forward by Joe Biden is Neera Tanden, who is the head of the Center for American Progress. Uh, they've gone after us. They've gone after not specifically you, David, but organizations that we've worked for. Uh, she tends to be a troll, big troll on the social medias, uh, but she did uh, delete many of her, you know, older, <laughs> older tweets and things. So there's that. John Kerry as the climate czar, which I guess is coming back. There'll be a, yeah. a lot more. To... So yeah, there's a lot going on there. I uh, just wanted to keep an eye on it. I do want to get into a story of espionage, oh. of sex and intrigue, David. Wow. But before we do that, I do want to hear about your latest writings. And there's a couple of things that you've been you've been publishing here in the last couple of days that I think many of our listeners would appreciate. So run run us through the list, good man. Yeah. So my most recent um, most recent uh, op-ed was with the Financial Post about supply management. So um, we have talked about this on 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 the show before, but for those who don't know, supply management is basically a series of protections for Canadian dairy farmers and chicken farmers and egg farmers, and no other. Uh, sector in agriculture gets this type of protection and it essentially means that you can't buy imported products and prices are artificially high for those things in Canada. And unfortunately, uh, our government has voted unanimously to continue to protect supply management in any future trade deal. And so I wrote an op-ed basically begging members of parliament to stand up against supply management because it would make our trading relationship a lot better. But more importantly, it's going to uh, positively impact Canadian consumers. And, and when I, I mean, to help conceptualize this, this is the stat that really I think drives the point home is 
So prices are inflated on staple goods, milk, cheese, chicken, eggs. For your ordinary family, that's a huge portion of your grocery bill. So those prices are inflated upwards of $500, $600 per year for the average family. That number actually pushes more than 100,000 people below the poverty line. And so there are, if people had access to better pricing and, and more competition, they would be five, $600 richer. And politicians talk all the time about people who live paycheck to paycheck. Well, how many Americans or how many Canadians would be in serious trouble if you were to just hand them a five or $600 bill? Would they be able to buy all the groceries they want? Would they be able to make rent? There's a lot of people who flirt at that um, that line of of really being insecure, and so supply management pushes the, the hundred thousand people uh, under the poverty line, also that we can benefit less than twenty thousand farmers with this artificial protection and ensure that they make one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year and um, all sorts of other nonsense and so I argue that we need to open that market up just like we do for beef. Canada is an exporter of beef we 're also an importer of beef you can get Argentinian beef if you want. You can get American beef if you want. Um, and we send our products around the world. There's no reason why it shouldn't be the same for chicken and dairy. And so um, my latest is, is pleading with members of parliament to not protect supply management in our trade talks. Great piece. I, I wonder uh, what the wealth tax uh, computation would be for many of these dairy farmers if you include the price of their farms. And, uh, and that rent that contract you know that ability to be uh connected to, to supply management that's a pretty payout as well i wonder if that would be calculated in the, the yeah. wealth tax yeah, actually, uh, so for a large farm yes um but i think the average farm is uh value is about six million and and, and wow. yeah so we're not talking about um we're not talking about like your small mom and pop farmers like the stereotype that you think they, they yeah the farmer ben yeah, small family farm they try and brand themselves that way but it's a total fallacy uh i mean these are large-scale farms for the most part they're not quite as large as in the u.s um but that's because they don't have to be efficient and they don't have to economize because they have protection you you don't have to invest in the latest technology to uh, have a higher yield when you don't have to compete against products from other provinces, let alone. And so it just creates this really um, very slow and, and slow moving and slow to innovate uh, industry. And it's ultimately consumers who are footing the bill. And the worst part is, is that the, the, the dairy lobby, if we call them that, they're more powerful than the NRA is in the United States. Um, and I don't stranglehold. Yeah. And I don't mm. say that as someone who's like, oh, the NRA are evil. And I don't say that as someone who's like, oh, the NRA are, are fantastic. Whatever your opinions are of the NRA is irrelevant, but that is how powerful the dairy lobby is uh, in Canada. And they have a stranglehold on pretty much every party um, in parliament. And so uh, I'm not hopeful that any MP is actually going to stand up to supply management, but hopefully I can keep some, some fire to their feet so that they don't forget that this is a ridiculous program and they need to stop supporting it. You can read that in the Financial Post. We'll link to that uh, here in our show notes. And then I had a piece out in 
inside sources about uh, what Biden, I, I'm actually going very easy on Biden here, uh, some of the ideas that he can champion to woo some of the former Trump coalition. So many of these things are not going to be uber, uh, we'll say, uh, controversial, but a lot of it has to do with the ongoing, ongoing overseas wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, American people not really in favor of that anymore. Uh, when we talk about the role of Congress actually stepping up and taking more of their war powers uh, and actually executing those in a way. Yep. There's the criminal justice reform that uh, President Trump did sign off on, and it was very important. And many uh, Republican legislators across the states, including uh, State Senator Jeff Brandes, whom we've had on from the great state of Florida, he's actually now on a panel leading uh, criminal justice reform in the state of Florida. He was one of our previous guests. You can go and listen to that as well. So that's, that's another idea. Uh, definitely, you can think of everything having to do with the occupational licensing reforms, allowing people to have their license in the state of New Jersey and then drive over to Arizona and be able to practice the same occupation, that kind of thing. And then tariffs and free trade. Uh, which is a, a big issue for us, something that we work on a lot and have worked on in many different countries. Uh, you know, we'll see if if uh, the Biden administration does turn around many of the, the kind of Trump policies on that. That would be very good. That'd be something that can be done relatively quickly, uh, as far as I know. Uh, we'll see what happens, though, with the different Congress and uh, how it works out. Good. David, you ready for some uh, intrigue? Ooh, let's hear it. So this has to do with uh, an, a country that, uh, or I would say a regime that you and I adore, uh, the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> um, there is an exclusive article in Axios, uh, we'll link to that in the show notes, suspected Chinese spy targeted California politicians. Now, this is a very explosive piece, and this details the story of one Chinese national whose name is Fang Fang, or went by Christine Fang, targeting many politicians across California, uh, mostly Democrats, basically just trying to gain influence. It's very, uh, very similar to the Anna Chapman case from many years ago. Some of you remember that, uh, who was from Russia and was big in the social scenes. I believe, in New York and D.C., and it tells the story of Fang actually being able to sleep with mayors, with attending fundraisers, with meeting congressmen like uh, Representative Eric Swalwell, who's a big, uh, big Russiagate person. And it's just insane the, the detail that goes into this, because it was over many years. There were many other ways uh, that, that she was able to gain access to many of these different political leaders, uh, was able to hook up with some mayors, which helps out. And it seems as if the, the Chinese Communist Party was kind of playing the long game here. Now, I don't know if this is like, um, it's not like the Americans show where you have people who are, you know, trying to blend in and then do whatever. But man, this... Uh, this goes pretty deep, and you could imagine if there's one person like this, one uh, very successful uh, mm -hmm. female spook, uh, you can imagine there are thousands more out there probably thinking of the same thing. Well, and what's interesting is that it almost feels like a lot of the attention was focused on Russia for so long that there was a bit of a blind spot to the adversary that is the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, the re the real one, the real adversary. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I, I think that both 
the the Russian government and Putin and the Chinese Communist Party are av certainly adversaries of the United States or the West, if we want to call it that. Um, but yeah, I think people just kind of forgot that there is a regime that is uh, that is coercive that that is probably committing a genocide right now is forcibly sterilizing the Uyghurs like these are bad guys um and I think a lot of people forgot that I mean um, did you see the the headline about Huawei the other day no no hit me that they worked with the now this is this is mind-boggling they worked directly with the Chinese Communist Party in China to create facial recognition software that would mm. identify Uyghurs. So that's an ethnic minority for those who don't know. It's an ethnic minority, ethnic Muslim minority in China uh, to identify them so that the police could go and get them and then put them on the trains and send them to these concentration camps. And if that does not sound, if that does not, if that does not sound the alarm for you, then I don't know what would, because that is like that is about as egregious as it gets beyond mass murder before mass murder. Uh, yeah, it's pretty insane. Yeah. and this is as you mentioned, uh, this is the real enemy that's been in front of us is this regime and what they've been doing. Whereas the Russia stuff was just a lot of smoke, a lot of smoke. Believe me, it filled up a room. But you know, what did it really get to this level? You know, were they really playing the influence game like many members of the Chinese Communist Party here? Yeah, I thought that story was interesting. There's going to be more to come out uh, real quick, David, before we uh, head out for the hour. Thanks uh, to everyone for listening. Uh, let's let's go to the consumer corner here. Any products or services or things that you've been really happy with uh, here recently that we can recommend to the listeners? Yeah, one. So it's funny. This isn't a new product, but I, it's a real game changer. And I think you have the same one. Now, I haven't used it in a while because I'm going for a bit of the, the homeless man look with the beard here. Um, but the one blade, the uh, the razor, it's it is I think one of the best products out there in terms of uh, for men's um, facial care or whatever that sector. Of the, I don't know grooming, grooming, grooming. yeah, grooming. Um, all the attachments you can get your beard just right. You can use it as an actual razor itself. Um, mm. yeah, it's a pretty good one. I, 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 yeah, I, I also would recommend it. The only problem I have with it is I always break the, the blade too often. You know, if it just falls on the ground, sometimes then, it can yeah, snap. It is a little too fragile. You got to make sure in between uses, you take the blade off so that doesn't happen. I have, I've had that happen. put it in the little case. Yeah. I've had that happen in my travel bag where I, I take it out and I've left the blade on and then it snapped and then I'm somewhere else and i can't do i can't i, I look like a homeless man uh can't clean up yeah that's a good one yeah. i like that yeah uh, i guess for my service i'm gonna say hbo max okay uh just got this the other week it's been amazing all the hbo original shows these are not ads by the way it's just good yeah cool stuff no like. free ads but i <laughs> yeah no you gotta pay us uh but i really love the the service the app works really well they have a lot of partnerships with different companies and movie studios and everything else i think they really did a great job and uh it's i you know it's a product i love unfortunately i do need to use it with a vpn so i i'm only able to use it uh, using a us address and stuff but 
regardless, a lot of great content on there, great shows, movies, and, mm-hmm. and stuff that's live every week, you know, so you're, you're catching up. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that does it for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, we just, uh, upgraded to, uh, Crave's version of HBO. And so I'll have to give you a week before I can comment on whether it's worth it. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, Thanks again. do exist they do exist i don't think canadians care about blood plus I, I am tired of my radio stations playing canadian music money's coming, coming from, from somewhere, somewhere yes